6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. And the kingdom he's talking about here is one that is going to be established, and it's going to be established on the earth, by the way. I won't get into this in detail here, but I'll highlight one thing to you. The term kingdom of heaven is only used by Matthew, not Mark, Luke, and John. They use the term kingdom of heaven, which is an all-inclusive term. Kingdom of heaven is denotative, and it's a genitive of source, not a genitive of apposition. What do I mean by that? It's the kingdom from heaven. So don't confuse it with heaven. It's a kingdom on the earth. It has a capital. It has the floor plan of the palaces in Ezekiel 40 through 48. He's going to be on the earth. And um, we need to understand that. And this little parenthesis we call life is our boot camp to prepare us for the responsibilities that will be assigned us then. And that's what, we'll get into some of that as we go forward here a little bit. Light and darkness, they're common theological items, terms that are used in many religions and found even as recently in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Paul is contrasting the realm or sphere of the new age, his new age, the age of light, with that of the present age, the evil sphere, or exousia, if you will, of darkness. We're in the current age as darkness. We have been translated into the light. And uh, elsewhere, the evil sphere of darkness is equated with the power of Satan. And, uh, well, it's so easy to go from any one of these things into a whole bunch of digressions. Because in our corollary study, the origin of evil. We get into the gap theory and the, the fact that uh, now I've been not even start. Let's go. <laughs> okay. It's interesting that when you talk about dark and light, that the Hebrew term through Genesis is Erev and Boker. The evening and the morning were the first day, or day one, not first day, day one, and so forth. Erev and Boker for six days. On the seventh day, there is no Erev and Boker. So those terms originally meant going from darkness to light in the sense of steps of entropy reduction, steps of, of, of creation. And they come to mean then darkness or obscurity, that term tends to mean night, erev. And boker, the light, the morning when you can, things start to become clear, the erev and boker process of just becomes evening and morning in the Hebrew language. And uh, it's interesting in Genesis that profiles each step of creation in six steps. The seventh day is still a day, but there was no error of invoker. That is, no creative act, act took, took place there. And uh, now it's interesting, as Gentiles, we reckon the days not from night to morning, the way the Hebrew calendar does, darkness to light, which is what it celebrates. We measure our days from midnight to midnight, from darkness to darkness. Interesting. I wouldn't make too much of that, but I think that's, that's interesting. Okay. And uh, so obviously we have just published this study in the kingdom 
the power and the glory, which deals with this kingdom that's going to be on the earth, ruled by Christ himself. Say, well, that's an Old Testament idea. No, that's what Gabriel told Mary when he announced the birth of Christ, that he would be on the throne of David. The throne of David didn't exist in those days. Rome ruled the world. And uh, when you get to the pivotal event of the book of Acts, James quotes Amos 9, uh, 9 10, and 11, that uh, the tabernacle of David, not the temple, the tabernacle of David will be established once again, and so forth. So we need to understand that even at the ascension, Sabbath that's why you're going to set up the kingdom now. He says, not for you to know the time. He doesn't say he's not going to do it, but that's not, their, that's not of their concern. He's coming to set up a kingdom on the earth, and it's going to affect every one of us. And uh, we, every day that he tallies, uh, tarries, every day that he waits a little bit, gives us an extra day to repair our report card. We'll be getting to that here uh, in this study too. Anyway, moving on. Paul continues, verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Wow. The forgiveness of sins. And because we have been forgiven, we can forgive others. That conditional isn't on us. It's the reason we should be forgiving others. It's not that you won't be forgiven if you don't forgive others. That's many people misunderstand that. No, we've been forgiven. It's a done deal. We'll be talking about that. But it's because that's a done deal, we can have the freedom to exercise that to others. And that's important. And the, the parable of the unforgiving servant makes it clear that the unforgiving spirit always leads to bondage. You forgive somebody, so you unhook your bondage to him for that, unforgi for, for that unforgiveness who put you in bondage. That's one of the things my, I've, I've learned from my wife in her first book, The Way of Agape, is that the most dangerous hurts you have are the justified ones. Because they're the hardest to let go. Someone that's wronged you, and it's, your, your feelings are really justified, are the dangerous ones. Because you won't let those go. The easy ones, well, that's fine, no problem. Those aren't the dangerous ones. Dangerous ones where you're really, you've really been wronged. No. Those are the ones you want to get rid of the bondage by forgiving. Because you're doing yourself the favor by forgiving them. Because you're releasing that bondage. That's a very, very profound thing to grab hold of and practice. But uh, anyway, these verses which posit a past deliverance and transference into Christ's kingdom. You're in that kingdom now. It isn't established on the earth yet, but it will be. But you are in that kingdom now. It's a past deal. A redemption which Christians have as a present possession. You've been redeemed. You may not feel any different. He's done it. These are all hallmarks in, in Paul's language here of a realized eschatology. Eschatology is a study of the last things. And we think of eschatology, well, that's the second coming. No, no. You have, your eschatology is realized. It's done. It's accomplished. It's a done deal. And uh, so the actual new age arrived with Christ's resurrection. That started the real new age. And Christians enter it at conversion. You enter that when you've accepted Christ. You accepted Christ. You haven't changed yet. That's a whole other story we'll get to. But you are saved, nailed. What did you contribute to that? Nothing. To try to add to that is blasphemy. Hard thing to get across. We'll get to that. In fact, foundational issues. There are some issues we need to deal with. I would 
almost put it in the introduction, but I would have run too long, so I've just left. This is a good place to sort of repair this. If you've been through Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, our, which is our sort of our preliminary, a lot of this will be familiar to you. Uh, if you've been through some of the other epistles, this will be a review for you, but it's worth, well, time well spent. I want to talk about the paradigm of salvation, the whole issue of eternal security, and the origin of evil. That should take care of the afternoon, huh? <laughs> the paradigm of salvation. You know, in, within the Institute, we don't let our students use the term salvation because it's confusing. Earl Rademacher always used to come in the office and says, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. And he used to say that deliberately to, conf bring, to confuse people. Are you saved? Past or present or future? What is it? All three, and they're different. The paradigm, I'll call it, like a verb thing. Okay. Past tense is called justification. What is justification? The gift of God of everlasting life received by faith alone in Christ Jesus. That says it all. Lots of verses on that. You can check them out. What is, when we use the term justification, it's a gift. You don't buy it. You can't earn it. It's a gift of God of everlasting life that you receive by faith alone. If you believe it, you trust it, you have it. It's done. Deal. You haven't earned it. It's a gift. The present tense of self, that's past tense. Present tense is sanctification. What is that? A work in progress that involves the faith and the works of the believer. My justification is secure. Christ accomplished it on a cross 2,000 years ago. My sanctif I'm a work in progress. We all are. I'm a work in progress. God is not finished with me yet. And I won't give you a list of the things that he's still working on me on. There's plenty of them. And uh, I'm a weird one. I lose my temper at inanimate objects. When a drawer sticks or hit my thumb with a hammer or something. My behavior is abominable. Now there's probably worse things I could do too, but I, I, I'm amazed at myself that I can get so angry at inanimate objects. But anyway, and there are other things, but I'll spare you that. Sanctification, a work in progress, that's present tense. Glorification, that's the future tense. That's the result of the previous aspects. Okay. Now, all believers will be glorified, he reminds us, in Romans 8, one of the, your security is all, extends all the way through sanctification and glorification. That's a shock to many theologians. All believers will be glorified, that is, resurrected and given a body like Christ. But some will have more glory or reward than others, and we'll get to that in the subsequent aspect here. So we have the past tense of salvation that's separated from the penalty of sin. We call that justification, past tense. You're separated from the penalty of sin. When you accept Christ, your passport to heaven is stamped, not guilty, innocent. You haven't changed yet. Why? Christ has paid for it all. You follow me? That's justification. Past tense. Present tense is separation from the power of sin. If you're an unbeliever, you are in bondage to sin. If you're a believer, you have a resource that can keep you from sin. You may not invoke it as much as you should. You may still stumble, but you have power over that. You're separated from the power of sin. That's called sanctification. You can call upon the Holy Spirit to get rid of an addiction or whatever else. If unbeliever can, a believer can. And uh, the future tense, of course, is separation from the presence of sin altogether. And we call that glorification. Past tense, separation from the penalty of sin, justification. Present tense, 
separation from the power of sin over your life. And future tense, separation from the very presence of sin, and of course, that's yet future. And uh, so, these three terms, justification, we use instead of salvation, because salvation is ambiguous. I was saved from a burning fire last week. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about soteriological salvation. And yet, what are we talking about? Past tense, present tense, future tense. So we use those three terms instead. It's more precise. One of the things that will advance you in your study of the Bible is to be very precise. Be very strict with the text. Take the text seriously. God means what He says and says what He means to astonishing precision. And so we respect that precision and uh, you'll get further. So these three terms are the past, present, future of the term that we use loosely, sloppily, salvation. Justification is for us. Sanctification is in us. Justification declares the sinner righteous. Sanctification makes the sinner righteous. Justification removes the guilt and penalty of sin, and sanctification removes the growth and power of sin. Distinctive. They're very different. Okay, let's go to the next one. Eternal security. Can you lose your salvation? Boy, that'll divide the audience. I won't ask for a show of hands. Let's see what Jesus says about the subject. John 6, Jesus says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Wow, that's quite an invitation. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Wow. Okay. If you can lose your salvation, Jesus lost something more than you have. He's lost his good name. I should lose nothing. See? That's his, that's his boast he can make to the Father. It gets even deeper than that. We could go on and on on the subject. We've done a whole two-hour study on it. It's available in our little package. I'll hang the, my hat on this one example in John 10. It's my favorite example. John 10, verse 28 and 29. Jesus says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Look at that carefully. Out of my hand, Jesus says, and my Father's hand. There are two hands here. I see it like this, or like this. I'm in there. Do you think I could get out if I tried? I don't think so. I'm a man, and no man can pluck them out of either the Son or the Father's hand. Okay? Now, if you can lose your salvation, I have a new name for God. Butterfingers. That's sort of a Walter Martin kind of crack. I can't. Walter was a dear friend, and I, I can't resist, you know, uh, leaning on his sort of irreverent style here. But the thing is, you'll always remember that, won't you? You see. And we build our case for eternal security on all three members. The Son guarantees your salvation. The Holy Spirit, uh, the Father. Uh, in fact, in John 17, when Jesus is praying to the Father, He hands that responsibility to the Father. And of course, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Godhead are committed to protecting your salvation. So you are secure. Now, that, uh, and by the way, 
uh, as I say, we have a whole study on that. If this, is a, if this is still a problem for you, I encourage you to don't let the sun go down on that insecurity. You, if you're in Christ, you are secure because it's his responsibility, not yours. He did it on the cross. You didn't add anything to that. And how many of your sins were yet future when he hung on that cross? All of them. Exactly right. All of them. He paid for all of them. Well, let's go to the origin of evil. Why is there evil in, in, in this world if creation was made by a holy God? That's one of the things that really messes up the, uh, Judaism in the Kabbalah, and we'll get to that in, the, in a later hour. Um, and that's also got the Gnostics. They had this whole theory about that, uh, uh, the entrance of evil, the nature of evil, and so forth. And see, the philosophers came to the wrong conclusion that all matter was evil. All matter is evil. No, matter isn't evil or not evil. That's not the, Their false conclusion was that a holy God could not come into contact with evil matter, so there had to be a series of emanations from God uh, to His creation. And they believed that a, 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 in, a, in a powerful uh, spirit world that used material things to attack mankind. They made that distinction, all evil. And that led to these ascetic and strange practices. They also held to a form of astrology, believing that angelic beings ruled the heavenly bodies and influenced affairs on earth and so forth. It all builds from this strange kind of separation thing, if you will. So since to them matter was evil, they had to find some way to control their own human natures in pursuit of perfection. And two different practices emerges from this false concept. One school of thought held that the only way to conquer evil matter was by means of rigid discipline and asceticism. So they conjured up all these weird things in life to somehow deal with the evilness that was around them. And uh, the other view was taught that it was permissible to engage in all kinds of sin, since matter was evil anyway. It appears that the first opinion was the predominant one in Colossae, but there's two opinions when you speak of Gnosticism, by the way, there's all kinds of shapes and sizes. It's very difficult to research this and compartmentalize it because they really, it has all kinds of convolutions. But matter is not evil. The human body is not evil. Each person is born with a fallen human nature that wants to control the body and use it for sin, but the body itself is not evil. And uh, if that were the case, Jesus Christ would never come to earth in a, bo a human body. That tells you volumes right there. And uh, nor would he have enjoyed uh, the uh, uh, everyday blessings of life that ministered on the earth, such as attending wedding feasts and accepting invitations to dinner and so forth. Those aren't evil things. Uh, diets and disciplines can be good for one's health, but they have no power to develop true spirituality, to separate the two issues. Doesn't mean that diets and those things can't be good, even exercise, well, fine, but it doesn't have anything to do with your spiritual life. So, Gnosticism, their concept was spiritual perfection by mixtures of legalism, rules, mysticism of all kinds, and we'll, deal, we'll be dealing with some of those in the next hour, special rites and ceremonies, Eastern philosophic thought, diet-based commitments. These are all false concepts deriving from their views, erroneous views, of the origin of evil. Uh, legalism comes the Messianic Judaizers. You find them today. Uh, nothing's more exciting than a Messianic Jew, a Jew that has discovered his Messiah. It's marvelous. And yet, many of them 
are still under the law. They, don't, they haven't studied the book of Romans. They haven't studied, the, I don't think the book of Galatians is in their Bible somehow. So, and mysticism. Yeah, that's a strange term to use, but all kinds of Christians are chasing experience-based phenomenon. Gold dust or whatever, you know. And it, 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 you can almost build a, a panorama of what's weaving through the culture. People who, once you start looking for experiences... Rather than relying on the Word of God, you're inviting this bizarre results. And the origin of evil, we have a full study on that that gets into the gap theory and all that stuff also. You might find kind of fun. So. so these heretics then are in effect attacking the person and work of Jesus Christ. And to them he is merely one of God's many emanations and not the very Son of God come in the flesh. That's the, every cult will attempt to deny that. The incarnation means God with us, we learn in Matthew chapter 1. But these false teachers claim that God was keeping his distance from us. No, it's just the opposite. Just the opposite. And uh, when we trust the Son of God, there is no need for intermediary beings between us and heaven. You have nobody. You don't have to go to Christ's mother to get access. Okay. So... Christian believers need to be cautious that they don't mix their Christian faith with other things like yoga or transcendental meditation, orientalism. You don't mix these things. To do so is to dethrone Christ. To do those kinds of things is to, to imply that Christ is not sufficient in himself. Beware of the so-called deeper life teachers who offer a system for victory and fullness that bypasses devotion to Christ himself. That's what it's all about. All these other things are distractions, diversions. And uh, in all things, Christ must have preeminence. Preeminence. The ultimate reality, in his work on the cross, Jesus Christ settled the sin question once and for all. And he completely defeated all satanic forces. And uh, he put an end to the legal demands of the law. That's an astonishing, astonishing statement. He put an end to the legal demands by fulfilling them himself on your behalf. So trying to keep the law is to imply he didn't complete it for you. That's a form of blasphemy, interestingly enough. Jesus Christ alone is the preeminent one, and all that the believer needs is Jesus. You don't need angels. You don't need these other things from this point of view, at least. Okay, so we have managed our way through the first 14 verses. Um, and now the fun begins. This has been typical preachy stuff so far, right? Review for most of you. But we're now going to move into the second half of chapter 1 which includes some of the most astonishing statements in the entire Bible about the creation and the church itself uh, in the next session. So in your next session, I want you to study carefully verses 15 through 29 of chapter 1. And I want to ask, as you do this, I want you to think about what are the boundaries of our physical reality? You know, we have, we have boundaries. We live, you know, in the UK, and you know, we have, a, we have a, a sense of where we are. 
Well, let's broaden that. Where are we physically? What are our boundaries in total? The great discovery of 20th century science is the universe is finite, not infinite. That's a shock. Because that leads to the whole idea that it had a beginning. That's what leads to the Big Bang conjectures, those kinds of things. That the universe is finite in the macrocosm, and it's finite in the microcosm. What does that mean? Be thinking on those things. And what are the implications of that? It will astonish you to realize the nature of the physical reality as we now have understand it. And so, and that all leads to another question. Why is the section we're moving into, the last half of chapter 1, regarded as the most elevated view in the New Testament? Most elevated view. The highest pinnacle of truth that you can find in the New Testament will show up in this epistle next time. Watch for it. Coming to a Bible study near you. <laughs> Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the extremes that you've gone to that we might live. We thank you, Father, for calling us, for making us aware of your presence, for making us aware of what you have already done and committed on our behalf. We do pray, Father, that through your Holy Spirit and through your word, you might help us to apprehend this incredible gift that you've arranged for us. We do pray, Father, that you would help each of us to grow in grace and knowledge of our preeminent one, our coming King, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Colossians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.